Hey everyone, and welcome to The Rational Republican, a podcast where we look at complex issues facing us here in Oregon and around the nation. We'll try to address issues from a nonpartisan perspective and view our disagreements through a lens of respect rather than tribalism or divisiveness. I'm James Ball. This is Nick Perlosky. Hey listeners, how we doing? Today we're glad to welcome Dr. Satya Chandragari. Correct? I say that right? Chandragiri. Chandragiri. I'm so close. I am so bad. Practice this. So bad. No, you don't have to be bad because my parents didn't know English. They kept throwing letters. So something (laughs) else. And there are more alphabets in Indian language than English, right? We have got what, 26 characters? We do, yeah. Yeah. And there are about 56. So we make more noise than uh, Western (laughs) folks. So, you know, you think of permutation combination. Uh, We We can make much more noise in different tones and different sounds. We have our podcast, so we're pretty good at making noise ourselves, hopefully. And this is now the (laughs) second podcast where I've screwed up the name of our guest. (laughs) Between me and my wife, we speak nine languages. Touch me. I can speak in tongues. Wow. (laughs) I actually, I was curious to add, because I heard that on another interview. I was curious to know which, which nine between the two of you. So I speak South Indian languages, okay, Tamil, Telugu, Kannada, Malayalam, and uh, then Hindi English. Okay. Then my wife is from Northeast India, bordering China, Myanmar, and Bhutan. So she speaks mostly tribal languages, which I don't understand. Wow. I use an interpreter to talk to my in-laws. Wow. Plus, <laughs> she speaks a smattering of Nepali and Assamese. So we have picked Hindi and English as a common language because most family members can speak. I still use an interpreter to talk to my in-laws. Wow, okay. I can read her letters, which are used in English scripts, but I can't understand a word. Well, so if the school board race doesn't work out, it sounds like you got a future as like creating a Duolingo app to help. Well, we have survived 25 years of marriage. And we just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. So oh, sometimes, happy anniversary. Thank you. So sometimes, you know, using an interpreter to talk to your in-laws is the best way to have happy marriage because they don't turn outlaws. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Good well, to know. <laughs> getting back to the introduction, two minutes into the podcast, Dr. Dr. Chandragiri, uh-huh. Chandragiri is running for the Salem-Kaiser School Board. He's a psychiatrist has worked with uh, the VA and veterans and PTSD, which is kind of how I got in touch with him a year ago when you were running for running for office. I saw somebody who had experience working with veterans and PTSD and decided that if I was going to support somebody, I wanted to support that oh, guy. Thank so, you very much. Uh, welcome to the podcast, I guess. Thank you. Thank so, you. So uh, what made you decide to run for school board and what do you hope to accomplish in Salem-Kaiser? First of all, I'm a parent of two children who went through Salem-Kaiser School District. And uh, they graduated from high school, uh, and my daughter graduated from uh, Cal Poly. And she is now teaching English in uh, Armenia as part of the Peace Corps. Wow. And my son graduated from high school, South Salem High School. He's now a second year in Oregon State University. Go Beavs. Thank you. (laughs) I married one, so I have to obligatory. (laughs) So I've been practicing psychiatrist for 30 years. I've served in three countries. And this is my 19th year in Oregon. Served diverse communities of children, families, veterans, and seniors in this 30 years of all background you can imagine. Last year, we lost 16 youth to suicide. When I I decided to run for, for House District 19, was the same reason. At that time, I was a VA doctor, half-time VA doctor. I saw veterans, uh, suicide, veterans with brain injury, veterans with PTSD, not receiving the care they should. 
It seemed a 19-year-old veteran. I thought for the next 80 years, I should be signed, you know, ready to serve that veteran. That's the promise we made to the veteran. But then I saw there was no care available. I saw a 93-year-old uh, veteran wandering around the parking lot because for every little procedure, he has to take a shuttle, go to Portland. Mm-hmm. I said, that is not enough. That's not right. And nobody was listening. So I was in India, in the Northeast India, visiting my wife's family, and our uh, representative stepped down. So I just decided to put my name. I sent a YouTube uh, request saying, can I fill in that position? Of course, little did I know that I was pretty naive. I just decided and uh, I went, became, you know, one of the three candidates to fill in that position. Of course, I didn't get, but that didn't stop me. At that time, you know, I had Dr. Pierce who's, and I discussed, and I thought to myself, if you're not going to, who's going to bet on a horse that doesn't run? Mm-hmm. So that's the reason I decided to put my name in the hat and be, decided to run for that in the primary. I was going against an incumbent, uh, Representative Bowles, a very fine uh, representative. I'm so proud of her that she won. In my voters' pamphlet, I put the same reason that we have uh, veterans, uh, suicide, they're not getting the care. At that time, I was on call and eight youth had ended their life by suicide. And that's eight just here in... In in Marion County in In 10 days. Wow. When I was on call on that weekend, there there was a 12-year-old child who had made a serious suicide attempt sitting there. And for me, there was nowhere to send the child. I just... And after 30 years of bearing witness, when you have to serve a 12-year-old child, look at the child's face and see the sadness and suffering, it breaks your heart. I thought to myself, you know, it's... I have to speak up. If you bear witness, you have an ethical and moral obligation to speak up. And if I don't, I'm as much uh, part of the problem. And that was the beginning. So then, I, of course, I didn't win the primary, but I continued to work in that area, continued to maintain relationship, including working with uh, Representative Bowles. We tried to start a zero suicide initiative in Salem Health and kept working in the field. So when I was doing a door-to-door camp, campaigning for another candidate, that's when we had the second suicide in 17 days from the same high school where my daughter went to school. Wow. And, well, we tried to reach everybody, but uh, it didn't go anywhere. And finally, when this open seat became available, when I was asked to consider this, I said, yes, this is the same reason that made me go and cons- run for the primary. And so it's it's interesting to me because I feel in in the Republican Party there's not often a focus on mental health issues. Yet you are a clearly you're an expert in the field and you've made your career doing this. What is it about mental health that you think steers you towards the Republican Party or makes you want to make a difference in the Republican Party? I think the Republican Party is the best platform to have a very rational, healthy mental health system. Not only in our state, but in our country. Hey, we're all about Republicans being rational. <laughs> <laughs> well, not because you guys call yourself rational Republicans, <laughs> because of the following reason. This is my 30th year. And I'll give you an example way before I came to this country. When I landed in St. Lucia in 1994, I was the only psychiatrist for a population of 60,000. So I was, drew a line through the country and I said, I'll take the south and asked my colleague, senior doctor who was there, you say, you stay with the North. So I was the only one person 
and I was taking care of 60,000 population. Half the island was mine. We had just bare minimum resources, yet it forced me to consider very fiscally efficient way of running the service. Okay. Now, I realized that doesn't matter what the health problem was, the length of stay was 5.67 days. And the reason is, once a week, a banana ship would come to collect the quota of banana from that island. Okay. If you're not keeping your quota, your family starves. Mm-hmm. So this, I had to get the patient ready and send them back. Often I would see the patient in the field, machete in the hand and harvesting banana. Then I go beat them in the field and take care of them. I didn't, it didn't, I didn't know what to call it at that point of time. But when I look back and you compare that with what's going on in Oregon State Hospital, where we spend $35,000 per person per month, and people stay years and years and years. I had a patient who stayed 31 years in Oregon State Hospital. He could easily have been discharged to my care in the community 20 years ago. That's what I call a fiscal uh, irresponsible kind of approach, right? Now, I take care of patients with brain injury, strokes. Many of them are veterans. Some of them are not. With mental illness, at one-third the cost in the community in Lane County and uh, Douglas County, mm-hmm. 160 of them, some of those patients had over 500 times emergency room visits, jails, and in and out of homeless shelters. Now they had zero emergency room. Mm-hmm. Now to me, that lessons I learned not from the Republican Party, but I learned that in the island of St. Lucia, where we had to design and adapt. And we had such a beautiful outcome. Of course, we had. We had over 300 patients admitted in two years. Mm-hmm. These patients would never have gone to the state hospital because it's a totally different patient mix. And they did well. They went back, went back to work. They went back to earning their living in the banana fields. So that is how I learned how to be fiscally responsible. We had a guy on the podcast, I think the last podcast, who said, talking about PERS, I think the statement he said was, every problem in Oregon is a PERS problem because we allocated 40% more money to the schools in the last six yeah. years. That's a, Yeah, that's exactly it. And is there 40% fewer students in each classroom? Is right. there 40% more books? And no. And it's and to your point, Dr. Chandragiri, that's that's exactly it. Is there's You need to be able to deliver these services in a fiscally responsible manner because Oregon doesn't have the money to be able to fork it over on something that doesn't work. And I'd be curious, actually, if there are – not to – I'm sorry, James, no, not to preempt ahead. a question if you had one – I would have to guess that with the the number of young people who are clearly in need of the focus that you're working to highlight and, and the work that you actually do, what types of outcomes in some of the young people that you've worked with have you seen in terms of better grades, better attendance, college acceptance? Well, this is the way to understand it. You know, I'm a physician. First, I have to come up with a diagnosis and treatment plan. Then only I can write the prescription. Okay. Our school district seems to be writing the prescription without a diagnosis, without a treatment plan, and then hoping why the outcome doesn't match. Mm-hmm. So it's a complete uh, backward thinking. So when I started looking at the data that we have, I'm not happy with the graduation rate, 76% or 73%. It doesn't matter. It's still not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Then I see that children are dropping out, like not showing up to class. So this, to me, is a symptom. It's not the problem. Okay. It's a symptom of a lot of underlying conditions. Until we deal with the underlying causes, we really cannot see the outcome. 
So that's how I said, let's start with the three foundational things that we need to address. One, we need positive mental health. 18% of 8th graders are struggling with thoughts of suicide as we speak in the service. So 18%. there is 18% of 8th graders. Wow. So there is a problem we are dealing with. So we need to really, there's a, it's like changing oil while you're driving your car. So first step is to plug that. Mm-hmm. There's bullying and cyberbullying, which is compounding the problem. And then we need to understand what's driving some of this behavior. There is serious adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress these kids are going through. So when a child comes to school and acts out, throws the furniture, it is like a veteran having a flashback to what dangerous experiences they have experienced. Mm-hmm. The third important thing, teachers are like the first responders to this tragedy. They are watching this day in and day out. I see teachers crying, teachers are scared to go to school, teachers are throwing up. Some teachers end up coming to see me in my practice. So they are asked to do all kinds of things without training, without skill, without any resources. And there is no supervision and they are not allowed to do all the policies are like barrier for them to be teacher or, you know, all teachers are after all parents to start. A lot of bulk of them have kids. Well, that's so, I'm married to a fifth grade teacher and I, I can tell you firsthand that there's times that she okay. said, there's clearly this, there's a problem here and there's resources that are available to address it, but the process itself is slow or requests are denied and that's the, because the underlying we, issues aren't addressed to your point. underlying issue. So it's really the, so th- this is the foundation. Once you get this, then we need to start getting the teachers, the businesses, the legislators, the accrediting agencies, the families together to de- develop clear, uninterrupted educational pipelines that lead to meaningful job. My daughter taught English in Shanghai. Shanghai didn't have anything. I mean, after the Cultural Revolution, it was just in shambles. Today, they have the leading educational program. Other countries are teaching English, for example, in an industrial level. English was the game changer for me and for others. All immigrants want their children to learn English. All immigrants, irrespective of where we come from, want our children to have the best education so that it makes a difference. Because English, learning English is not just because it's a Republican Party platform. It is because one-fourth of the planet speaks English. That means that many more business opportunity, that's more opportunity for us to form peace delegations and relationship, international relationship. It helps different immigrants to understand the political discourse. I wouldn't be running for an office if I didn't know English. Let me be honest with mm-hmm. you. And honestly, it sounds like you, you're touching on it a little bit, but I, I'd be curious to know for, for our listeners who aren't in this room, which is everybody except for the two of us <laughs> when we listen later, um, but you, you are not a white person. You are not originally from Oregon or from this country. What do you think is is the benefit for seeing an elected leader who does have English as a second language and who did have to go through that process and who does not look like a typical Oregon politician? This is a very interesting question. I'm so glad you asked. I was in the Liberty House fundraiser Mm -hmm. and I I was so happy to see our governor walked up to our table and started talking to us. Mm -hmm. So someone introduced me to the governor as I'm a candidate for uh, School board election. In fact, I asked the governor to vote for me because she lives somewhere here, I'm told. Oh. <laughs> so uh, then she started saying something about we don't have people of color in the school board. Mm-hmm. I said, no, we do. Uh, one of our uh, school board uh, director 
is half Native American. Okay. Right? So really, it's a good question. Then she started saying something like, we don't have enough color. I said, don't worry, I can be colorful enough. <laughs> and I can be any color you want me to be. Like the Air Force recruitment. You know, I can be anybody you want me to be. <laughs> Humor apart, I think there is a really important point you bring up. Yes, we have got 68 different languages spoken in our Salem Kaiser School District among the children. Mm-hmm. We have wonderful diversity. And some of the immigrant families are not going to come to a school board meeting or open public forum and raise their hand and speak. And this is because for a variety of historic reasons and where they came from or even our own country's history, they are not going to be assertive. That does not mean they don't have an opinion. So being a person of color, being an immigrant and having walked the walk and lived it. Well, I understand what poverty is. I understand what not knowing English and uh, going to as predominantly English speed. I understand what diversity is. I understand what uh, anxiety people go through getting the visas renewed every year and not sure the next year you're going to have a visa. I understand what children is born in one country and the other country and what you have to s- negotiate through before you can really make a difference. Mm-hmm. We became citizens, proud citizens of U.S. only in 2010. So one of the important message I really want to say is, yes, my journey can be a story the next generation can follow. So that's one part of it. But the second important uh, lesson I have learned is how to connect with different people. You know, in 30 years, I started med school at 18. In my career of 30 years, I've served all kinds of Mm -hmm. St. Lucia when I landed. That's the first time I got to treat a white patient. I, previously, I thought all white people were tourists who come to see Taj Mahal, right? <laughs> a couple of important lessons I've learned. One, we have to listen because if we don't, it causes more conflict, mm-hmm. whether at a one-to-one level or at a geopolitical level. The second important lesson I've learned is we have to have a very deep level of understanding in order for me to be compassionate to other person's journey. Until we have a deeper level of understanding, we cannot be compassionate. We will make judgments, we will make assumptions about others. So that is another level. Most of those I serve, to start with, they are suspicious of me, somewhat overtly distrustful. Yet, in the last 30 years, my, those who I serve have taught me how to form relationship, how to ally with them, how to partner with them, how to look for common grounds and then start finding ways to work. And then when I look at my own personal life, it's like icing on top of a carrot cake. You can have strawberry icing, you can have vanilla icing, you can have mango icing, depending on what you grow. And my business has been at the level of carrot cake. Who eats the icing anyway? (laughs) And most of our country is stuck at the icing level. We are never once asking ourselves, can I kind of drill down a little bit more and try to understand at a human level? More than having a token person of color sitting in the board, I think the board member's important role is to look at the carrot cake, not just at a color. Because as a person of color, we should not stop at that level. I want to get beyond. In my business, I cannot just look at the color and stop. Because in my business, the last thing I will think is, is this 12-year-old child a blue child or a red child or a Hispanic child or a white child? All I see is, by God's grace, the child, somebody brought the child to the emergency room. 
And this is the serious uh, challenge I am seeing in our political narrative in our country. We are sending message to our children that the world is going to end in eight years or the carbon dioxide is going to fill up the whole space. How in the world can we give hope to our children saying, you know, the world is going to be there and we are all going to get you through this and you are going to be the future of our world. And that's the reason you need to show up to classes. Changing the subject a little bit, this school board is a nonpartisan position. We talked about this a little bit before the pod started, but you are a Republican. And so my question is basically, what can the Republican Party do to be better about mental health, to help bridge that racial or ethnic divide? For me personally, I live in downtown Portland, and I see homeless people with mental health problems all the time, and nobody's doing anything about it. I think what our Republican Party is the best party that can reach this. I'll give you an example. Let's start with the second question, then we'll come to the first question. I want to tell you a secret. No immigrant is a true liberal. My mom will be very ashamed if I say, Mom, I went to United States. Now they're giving me everything and I don't have to work. She'll say, come back here. I got work for you. <laughs> that's, that's a very good Why point. in the world would you go that far to get all that? I would. You come here, we'll put you to work. That is not only de-scaling, it is dehumanizing. So we really... Republican Party is, if you really look at the core value, is the only party that can really give the human dignity to human beings. Does that mean we should not have a safety net? No, that's not what I'm saying. I don't want our listeners to ever think that I'm against. I do take care of patients in Eastern Oregon who have gone through very difficult circumstances. Almost 90% of them are on some or other form of assistance. Yet, I work very hard to make them self-sufficient and create a dignity. But the worst thing we are doing in this kind of pandering and liberal policy, what we call liberal is not liberal. In my opinion, it is making you more dependent. It crushes your ego. It crushes your self-esteem. It takes away. If somebody starts giving me money and telling you, you don't have to work for 25 years, I'll forget how to write even a prescription for Tylenol. Forget mm. anything else. I don't want both of you coming to my clinic. Out of <laughs> I may have a degree with me. So that's one thing. So I think the Republican Party has to rethink itself and saying how Republican Party can go to the core human dignity, how to make the person really feel worth, self-worth, and then become a productive member. Sometimes with mental health problems, it may take step by step you get them back. Not overnight push them across the cliff. That's what we need to stop doing. We need to stop taking extreme approaches and say, okay, what extra step you need? But there has to be a vision that sending the message to the patient that you are going to do well and we're going to work with you to get you to that point. That is what true recovery is all about. Recovery is getting the person to have a meaning in life so that they can start feeling that they are also contributing things. Now, when you say house, homeless, mentally ill, mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that topic up. It's not just the mental illness alone that made them homeless. Mental illness do have variety of symptoms. But after some times, if you don't treat the symptoms and get them connected with treatment and re- therapy, they start losing their skills. And they need all those skills in order to hold a role or a job. And on top of that, if you have all kinds of policies and uh, bureaucracy that restricts them, 
let's face it this homeless problem is not because of just mental illness alone it's mental illness with all kinds of difficult policies restrictions for example in our state we have democratic party right mm-hmm. we call ourselves I mean, a liberal party but they have not allowed any child psychiatric program to come up in our state they got 22 beds for children below 12 and 22 beds for children between 12 to 18 in the entire state of Oregon any other children who have had children who sit weeks there's a kid who sat one month in the emergency room not a place to go we send children to idaho we send adults to idaho so it's not that the democratic party is got they, they don't listen it has become almost like an oligarchy running this state 2% of the patients served in the public using public dollars you know uh, we are spending almost like 44% of the budget in the state hospital system and the remaining 98% have to figure out how to make do with whatever is available now these are the open questions that we need to ask we have created so many ccos it's almost like they are like entirely separate entity they don't answer to anybody ccu coordinated care organization so okay. so we kind of divided up our state there's no leadership yet it has reached that a small pocket of people who they won't listen to anybody so as a republican party we need to start asking ourselves okay how do we be financially fiscally conservative how do we understand the issues so that we can really start asking ourselves how to work so that we prevent the mental health problems and access to care and other issues from reaching a point where we use homeless folks in the streets of portland in honey county which is majority republican county in the last 13 years or 15 years we worked bit by bit we got sometimes an off duty police officer will come and help we got the lot of the community helping us and we built that place into one of the best functioning county mental health in the state of oregon we have between 3 to 5 psychiatric hospitalization per year even if you are just for the population we are doing a fantastic job compared to other counties mm-hmm. including multnomah county mm-hmm. i'm just trying to say if i had a child who had mental illness i know which county to take the child which county not to take the child mm. and that is not republican or a liberal issue it is just a matter of allowing the system to work one of the things we're trying to do is um we want to start ending each show by asking each guest who their favorite republican is so if we could just ask who do you look up to who do you emulate who do you think we should see more types of this this person in the party i president lincoln is my favorite not just favorite he's the one i really look up to he's not just a man he was very simple guy he struggled with his own depression he had serious difficulty he dealt with serious ethical challenges yet he didn't lose sight of the moral value the ethical value the family value he lost several times he didn't give up even his campaign was very fiscally run some guy was running if ahead of the train he would just piggyback on that and go around <laughs> everywhere right and he was willing to lead by example he would stand in the front and lead and that's one lesson i learned from the marines i treated my style of leadership is i'll go to the problem when finicum was shot and the 41 day refuge takeover ended i drove to hani county camped there for 5 days when everybody else was leaving the county and that's my style 
I really appreciate uh, the time uh, yeah. you guys took all the way to come here and record this. Well, thank and you so much for being on the podcast and good luck in your campaign and hopefully we'll see you on the school board shortly. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Rational Republican. Please like and subscribe on your favorite podcasting service or you can listen on our website, jamesaball.com. Also, don't forget to follow us on social media and if you're feeling extra generous, you can visit our Patreon site, at patreon.com slash rationalrepublican. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.